Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with B.J. Miller. When B.J. was a sophomore at Princeton University, he survived a devastating electrical shock. In a freak accident, 11,000 volts of electricity surged through his body, leaving him without half an arm and both of his legs below the knees. What BJ did not know then was that this life-changing accident and the long road of recovery that followed would ultimately define the incredible career he has today. BJ is now a world-renowned palliative care physician. And yes, we'll tell you what that means. In a nutshell, he has spent decades helping people intimately design their experience of both suffering and death. And BJ has become somewhat famous for his uncanny ability to talk about the one thing we all have in common and somehow makes it seem not so scary and horrible. Today, he speaks openly about his personal journey and what he has learned witnessing hundreds and hundreds of deathbed moments, including his thoughts on FOMO and the four things that matter most to people when they know they are dying. Here's today's interview with Dr. B.J. Miller. B.J. Miller, thank you so much for joining us on All the Wiser. Welcome. Thank you, Kimmy. It's nice to talk to you. And I always ask our guests to introduce themselves. So how would you introduce yourself? Uh, hmm, let's see here. I guess it sort of depends who I'm talking to. Yeah, I guess I'm a human being and a palliative care physician and educator. How's that? That's great. But I um, am going to share with our audience that we're re-recording. <laughs> <laughs> this is an audio glitch. And the first time I asked you that, BJ, you opened by saying you were rugged and handsome, oh. which I think <laughs> our audience will agree with. So I'm just going to throw that in before we di- dive into the meat. Um, it's delightful. So I know that at this point, you have told this story a million times. But if you can set the stage for those who are hearing your story for the first time, the accident that happened to you in college. Yeah, so that would have been it would have been fall, it would have been November, November 27th, to be exact, 1990. I was a sophomore at college and we had just gotten back from Thanksgiving holiday and um a couple of my very good friends and I just decided to go uh, go out on the town for a little while. We were walking to get a sandwich late at night and and we just came across the commuter train. The, this train, it's called the Dinky, that runs from Princeton to Princeton Junction. It's a little, it's a little New Jersey Transit commuter train, and it was just sitting there. It was just parked. It was not operating hours. It was nothing, you know. We we decided to climb it like like kids would climb a jungle gym. Really, was the feeling. It wasn't. We didn't think we were doing something crazy or wild. Again, it wasn't moving. So. Anyway, we scurried up the ladder on the back, and I um, and when I stood up, I had a um, I had a metal watch on, and when I stood up, I got close enough to the power line, and the electricity arced to my watch, and uh, so entered my arm, my left arm, and then um, coursed around and tried to get out my feet. So 
and that was you know instantaneous. But then the uh, then I was a week in the hospital before I had any of surgeries per se, and then a series of amputations, and finally walked out of there, rolled out of there, uh, missing to both my feet and then my left hand essentially. Um, and that that was that. Then then became the rest of my life. How many volts of electricity went through your body? I think I, the number, I think I remember it was 11,000 volts. So you wake up and you realize that three of your limbs have been amputated. What do you remember about that? The first memory I remember coming out of one of the surgeries, I think it, I think it was the first surgery. Um, and this is in a burn unit. I don't know if your listeners or if you, Kimmy, have ever been to a burn unit, but burn units are very special places. They're, you know, they're about the least natural environment you can imagine. I mean, nature is the enemy in this case. You, you, when folks, if they survive their initial burn, what gets folks usually is infection. And so these are extremely sterile environments. So you're not, everyone who comes into your room is, first of all, it's kept at a very bare minimum. Um, and when they do come in, they're all gowned up and gloved and masked and all the whole nine yards. And then I remember coming out of the, the OR and on my way back to the burn unit, um, I remember seeing mom and dad. And I remember saying to my mom, uh, uh, there was a kind of a funny feeling. There was like an affection. There was like a warm, funny feeling. It wasn't, I, I don't know how to describe it, but just to say it wasn't all horrible at all. I remember saying to my mom, well, now we have so much more in common because my mom is disabled from polio um, as a child. So I just remember that feeling of like, it was sort of a playful feeling. I don't, and it was, there was, it, it felt like what had just happened among many, many other things, among many, many other sensations was I just had, I had a new layer of bonding with my family. And I, I remember that feeling very well. And it was a very sweet feeling to wake up to after amputations. And you spent how many months in the hospital? I think I was in the burn unit for about two, two and a half months, I think is the deal. Then I flew home to, and was in inpatient rehab in Chicago for about a month or so, and then home from there and outpatient rehab through the rest of the summer. And then I went back to school that fall. And so clearly there was a sense of connection with with your mom mm -hmm. and... You know, I, in hearing you speak so eloquently, you you do have this sense of almost optimism mm. um, and gratitude in the wake of what happened, which I think is incredible. How do you think, looking back, that that two and a half, three months within the walls of the burn unit changed you? Well, one thing just just, just out of the shoots here, Kimmy, I think what I have in me is just a much fuller spectrum of of emotion. Uh, and so I have a lot of pessimism in me too. I have every filter that I can imagine. You know, there's there's so many there are so many lenses we put on to look at our lives and look at the world. And one of them is optimism. And I it's a favorite one, it's a very useful one. But I just to say that it's not the only one. But really, so much of the meat of the change would have happened in the subsequent years of living with an obvious disability, letting it, letting it chart your course, letting yourself be changed. I was sort of radically, obviously changed in a way that was so forceful that I really couldn't ignore it. But so much of the power of something like this happening for me was the fact that I couldn't control it. So it it really reoriented my my experience or my um, my relationship with control, that's a huge one. It just gave me a way, it sort of blew up how I saw the world and myself in it. Um, the world now, my worldview coming as a sort of a white suburban boy at a place like Princeton, where whatever mind expanding was happening was really just that, was sort of intellectual expanding. It's not like the my suite of experience, of daily experiences was all that diverse. And 
it was pretty rarefied. But being in that kind of pain for that kind of long length of time to be dependent on so many others and seeing slices of life that I would never have been exposed to or not easily been exposed to earlier just blew up my worldview and, and therefore my place in it. Um, and then I guess the last thing I'll say that comes to mind, we could talk forever on this one, but uh, it also re- really it changed my take on fear. I was less, I became less fearful or it's more like I continue to have fears, but I, I am not quite as swayed by fear as I was before the experience. I, I see what my body can handle. I see what my consciousness can handle. I, I, I have come to know that quote unquote failure, that is death or disability is inevitable. And so therefore don't take it personally. Those things no longer set up as failures, but just as facts of life. And therefore, nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to be ashamed of. How long did it take before you were comfortable in your new body and stopped comparing yourself to the body you had before? That was a work in progress and clearly still is a work in progress. I noticed, the, I think, at year two, I noticed a big shift in myself in terms of my affect, how I felt about myself, you know, feelings of embarrassment in public, et cetera. I, I noticed, I noticed a, a shift in my own, just sort of being comfortable in my own skin, as it were, at the two-year mark. You talked about your mom and growing up. She was in a wheelchair, or is in a wheelchair from polio. Um, how do you think that informed your view and experience of living with um, a difference that's very visible to the outside world? Oh, dramatically. My view of normal has, has been, was, was enlarged. That, is that a word? Enlarged? <laughs> anyway, it was made bigger. Well, we'll Google <laughs> it. Yeah. it was made bigger <laughs> from the start, thanks to my mom. So that's a, I cannot under, uh, overstate the importance of that. So... I had somewhere in me when I when my silhouette changed, I had in me somewhere a, a knowledge, not just a theory, a knowledge that I still belonged. I still had access to the world. Anyway, not only did I see my mom's ex- example um, and how she navigated the world, um, but I saw a father who loved her for it, and that was also very key. So I. Right out of the shoots, I didn't have to feel, I didn't have to go through layers of self-loathing and shame and wondering if I'd ever be loved again. I had some proof, even if I didn't quite believe it yet on some level. I didn't necessarily think, I didn't, I didn't necessarily love myself or feel lovable, but I had proof that I could be. And I had proof of the love of others around me saying that I was. And so I just had to fill in the gaps myself. And that took, that took some time to work ongoing, but, um, yeah. I've heard you speak about your mom and I think your patients as well mm-hmm. about in particular you said people wouldn't look your mom in the eyes yeah. often. Yeah. They would be having a conversation and they would be looking your father in the eyes mm-hmm. when the conversation was was with your yep. mother. How did you feel that the world began to experience you differently? For sure. So I'm very aware that thanks to my prostheses, I get to put on legs, I get to be ambulatory, I get to be vertical. Um, and it's it's not uncommon for me to be well into conversation with someone before they ev- before they notice that I'm missing some parts. You know, when I've used a wheelchair, I've noticed is a huge difference. And my mom, when she's in a wheelchair, back to your question, when it, it is just stunning to me the lengths to which people go to avoid eye contact with someone who's in a wheelchair, especially if that chair is being pushed by someone else. The presumption is that that person in the chair is just either not really there or doesn't want to be engaged somehow is... We project shame onto those first people and we think we're doing them a favor by not looking at them and all this stuff. It's, it gets, the psychology is fascinating. I've just seen it play out a zillion times over, but uh, it can be heartbreaking to see the degree to which people to go to avoid noticing a person in a wheelchair among them. That's fascinating and heartbreaking yes, all at it once. it sure is. Yeah. Yep. Eventually, you decided you wanted to be a doctor when did that happen and why? 
really, you know, another thing that injuries did by force was just kind of put me in the moment. And that was really good in a way, right? I mean, to stay, to force yourself to be in the moment is a powerful thing. Uh, But that also meant graduation day rolled around and I was just, I was like walking to a cliff's edge. I had no, I had not thought, I had not let myself, I had not thought about what I was going to do to make a living. Um, I I couldn't, I didn't have the bandwidth to think about the future. And then I had to. Um, And so then it became a question of how, okay, what kind of work could I find that I could do comfortably enough physically? But the bigger point was, what could I do in this world to make a living that would allow me to exercise all these lessons that I was learning? They felt too important to just to keep to myself. They felt like this was a reason to live. This was a reason to be social. This was a reason. This was something I had to share. Um and and what I learned from my mother and other disability advocates, as a civil sort of as a, from a civil rights point of view, um, was that no, no, you don't, you don't overcome your disability, you don't hide your disability, you wear it proudly because it's you. It's not something I'm going to get over and put behind me. I can put some of the pain behind me, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to get over the fact that I've lost some limbs. That's just a fact. And I would rather keep that a naked fact as a part of life rather than try to stick it in the closet. I'm not attracted to the medical sciences per se. I was attracted to this application of humanity for humanity. And so I said, well, medicine, that would be cool. Um, came out, I, you know, if, if my doctor had walked in to my room and been missing parts, I think I would have, I think that would have really made a big uh, uh, impression on me. I think that would have been a really therapeutic, wonderful thing. So off I went down the road of medicine and just sort of inched my way forward. Deep in med school is actually going to quit. I had fallen out of love with the idea, and, but then I, I stumbled into palliative care and, and that lit up for me in all ways and, and away I went. You just touched on this, but as a doctor, your physical body is incredibly helpful to you. Your relationships with your patients mm-hmm. and is advantageous in a way. Mm-hmm. Can you articulate why? I think what American medicine tends to do very well is is acute care, tra- trauma care. So, like if someone like me ends up electrocuting themselves and ends up, you know. In, a, in an ER and, you know, you are actively usurping nature. You are most importantly as a clinician is your skill, um, the things you've learned and, and applying that skill, that craft. And that's, that's, you know, you could, your body could be any old shape and do that kind of acute care. Um, you bring a different kind of agency to the mix. But the moment that acute care becomes sort of subacute and chronic. That is, in other words, it's happening over time. And then this moves the clinician's role from just pure sort of applied skills, uh, interventional kind of skills. Then all of a sudden, you know, how they are, their attitude, do they make in their bones, do they make a case for living longer? Do they make a case for trying to live just in their person and how they present themselves? You know, do they register on your with you as a patient as someone who has found meaning and purpose in their life do they inspire you in some way do they intrigue you do they compel you to make it to that next doctor's visit to you know all of a sudden then what makes the the skill set shifts and then the 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 the, the person of the clinician uh, becomes uh, much more important you're looking to you, the patient, are looking to your clinician not just to give you a prescription, but to help make a case for life. Those are dramatically different skill sets. Does, does that make sense, Kimmy? I mean, can you imagine what I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah. No, been beautifully put. Thank you. I know during your last year of medical school, you lost your sister to suicide. What was that time like for you? Well, I mean, it was a brutal time, obviously, in some ways. Um, you know, Lisa's suicide, I, you know, she was posthumously diagnosed as manic depressive. Um, but we and her, including her therapist, had missed that diagnosis all along. We, she was, 
so smart and capable that so manipulative really can be that she could have anybody thinking whatever that she wanted them to think. And so she did. Um, and, and this is sadly, I suppose, sadly, one of her great strengths was, was also helped her undoing in this ability to, to rationalize just about anything to prop up a view of herself that wasn't real. Um, and so she kept the world at bay. She kept help at bay on some really important levels. Um, but, um, you know, I remember, I remember the millisecond I heard the news, um, and Lisa and I had talked about it. She had one of her best friends had killed herself during, uh, their time in college and it had really affected Lisa. And I remember Lisa and I had talked about this, like that, you know, we made something of a pact to never do that. Um, and, but I remember the millisecond I learned the news, I remember the feeling of no way being surprised. I, I took on a caregiving kind of role with my parents for one. I had a, my own course of grief with her loss that I look back on with some amount of regret. So in all sorts of ways, the world kind of crumbled. Um, and uh, interestingly though, I, you know, I don't, I ended up, you know, here I, I do a lot of life work around the end of life. And what, one thing that's been interesting to me is it never really has, Lisa's suicide hasn't really informed my take on death or my work in death. It's neither repelled me or attracted me to the subject. Um, and I'm not sure why. Um, I suppose the one counter, one uh, counterpoint um, is that death, we, we, I think in society, we basically have this tonic supposition that death is bad. Uh, we don't want it. Anyone dying would rather not be dying. Etc., and that's just blatantly untrue. Um, a lot of people actually choose death, even when they're alive and otherwise, on some level, healthy. Um, and so, I guess I suppose the one one legacy, but I, I give actually my patients more credit for this than my sister, is that death isn't always the enemy. In fact, death is sometimes welcome. Your specialty is palliative care, which I think there's some confusion around. Mm -hmm. How would you des describe it? Palliative care has this amazing potential to kind of reorient the health system and to help a lot of people in ways, in novel ways. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really hard thing to define um, well. I think the kind of most straight-ahead way to define palliative care is the is a team-based approach to the treatment of suffering. Um, and that hospice and end-of-life care is a subset of palliative care, but that's oriented around the final months of life. Um, so, so hospice being a subset of palliative care, palliative care, again, the treatment of suffering versus the rest of healthcare, which is really the treatment of disease. A nice example is you think of Think of neurosurgeons, you know, a really prized, beautiful, amazing specialty in medicine takes so much skill. I mean, you know, years and years of learning, et cetera, et cetera. So, but how many neurosurgeons have actually had their brain operated on? You know, very few. Um, they may know everything there is to know about neuroanatomy, et cetera, but they've never gone through the thing that their patients are going through. Whereas a palliative care clinician, uh, on some level, every palliative care provider has gone through some version of suffering. Can you share some real life examples and sort of, you know, bring it to life for people, what that looks like? Sure. So one thing to get clear is that this field, the work of this field really revolves around people who are living with serious or chronic illness. 
So that's one point. But like a typical referral to palliative care. So, so I work in a cancer center. And so we'll often get someone referred to us in palliative care for symptom management. In fact, that's what the clinic calls itself, the symptom management service. Um, because again, the language of palliative care doesn't resonate with a lot of people. So that's what they called it, symptom management service. So someone would get referred to come see me because they're having, say, you know, nausea from chemotherapy that's just proving to be intractable. And so, so, I'll, so I'll treat their nausea. And that's the nausea is the thing that's causing their suffering. I'll treat the nausea. And sometimes that's it. That typical encounter that may start with a very discreet symptom to manage, but very often that what ends up happening is, so now I've met this person, I've gotten to know them a little bit, and maybe I've gained their trust by treating their symptom. But then now, now they're known to me and I'm, and more to the point, I'm known to them. And I, I hopefully there's a little bit of, of trust has been built. So now maybe that person knows I'm on their team. And so maybe a year later, they've got a decision to make about treatment, whether to try this next line of chemotherapy, and they're not sure what to do. Um, and their talks with their oncologists have, have not, have so they're, they're still not clear. And they need a safe, learned ear uh, to hear them, to hear their concerns, and to bounce ideas off of, etc., uh, and to reflect with. So that same patient may come back and see me a year later, not for nausea, but because we know each other now and we have some trust, I might be in a position to help them navigate the crossroads of treatment. And that's something palliative care does very, very well. We'll help unearth your goals of care, what you're hoping to learn, from, get from treatment. I'll, I'll basically help link you your wishes, Kimmy, who you are, what you want from your life and what you hope for from treatment. I'll, I'll, I'll liaise knowing you with what in the healthcare system, what treatment would serve you best. So, and then, so maybe I help you make that decision uh, and off you go. And then maybe some years later, uh, that cancer has spread. And now we're looking at preparing, your, preparing you for the end of your life. Now, here again, this patient knows me, I know them, and they'll come back and we'll, we'll deal with end-of-life planning. So that's not an uncommon kind of, and that may meet it out over years. That's not an uncommon scenario in palliative care, especially in the outpatient world. And for those patients who are terminal mm -hmm. and dying, mm -hmm. I've heard it be described of working together to design their experience of yeah. death. How would you explain that? And is um, you know, how would you bring bring that to life? What that means? We really dig into the experience, and that is an experience that happens over time. You know, it's a dynamic thing that happens. Versus the rest of healthcare is so is is, is essentially structured as a series of transactions. And so, one thing right out of the shoots here is your use of the word experience is really really key. And the second point here would be like, you know, oftentimes one of the, a lot of my job is to help people kind of reframe their themselves in the world, to see to to take on a worldview in which they belong. So often people who are dealing with illness or who are dying are felt sort of left out. Like the world is moving on without them, like the world is not made for them. And there's a lot of reason that they might feel that way. A lot of cues suggesting as such. Um, but really, you know, the idea is, you know, the idea is to live until you die. And how are you going to live? Well, you need to feel like you belong. So how can we help find a worldview in which you belong, in which you're not some, you know, you're, just because you're sick doesn't mean you need to be banished to some leper colony that how do you see like i did with myself how do i see the world as a place that includes me so a lot of the a lot of the conversation around designing someone's end of life plan has to do with this this kind of work this sort of existential framing um, and that's my favorite part one of my favorite pieces of the job um, so what's causing you what's causing you anxiety where are your fears where are your hopes? You know all these little things that give me windows into in, into you, into the inside of you, how you how you see yourself. And then once I have that sort of established, once I have that kind of language, and we can see where where is your relief, and we can uptick that. So where in your daily life do you find some relief? Where do you feel like you belong? And very often for folks that may be a subtle signal, but it may be spending time at home with the dog. 
And so my job is to say, hey, that's a very valuable experience for you. Let's not let let's not crowd that off the list. I had one patient whose advanced directive was essentially when he could no longer have his five o'clock Manhattan, then he was done. And so any time a treatment decision came along as he was heading towards the end of life, some treatment decision that might extend his life, if it interfered with his ability to have his five o'clock Manhattan, he didn't, he wasn't interested. And that proved to be a very useful uh, advanced directive piece of information. So anyway, we'll explore all the sort of things that are meaningful to you. Where are the hazards? What do we want to down downregulate? And what do we want to upregulate? And then we'll start creating a daily life for yourself. Uh, of where do you spend your time? What are you doing? What do you say no to? What do you say yes to? And, and, and this is the way you begin to design your life until you die, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Thank you. And I know you've said that people can experience it one of two ways, mm-hmm. the process of dying, and which is bucket or fuck it. <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, I, you know, I can't, t- I can't remember the guy's name. I saw it. It was a TED Talk, basically the, the fuck it list. And, you know, I think most of us have heard of this idea of a bucket list. You know, some of us kind of roll our eyes. It's a little pad. It's a little cute. It's a little maybe unrealistic. But essentially the gist, I I do think you could kind of carve up a response to your own mortality. You've got sort of two major choices. A bucket list would be someone who says, holy shit, I've only got so, so many days left of life. What's most important to me, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna focus like never before on doing those things, whether it's a trip or time with uh, my grandkid or whatever it is. I'm gonna just let the world, rest of the world melt away and focus on those things on my bucket list. And and it's a process of focus of saying a bunch of no's to protect these very few yeses. Another approach that's great, you know, fine. Um, another approach that some folks prefer seem to prefer is the fuck it like you know nothing really at this point you know i've only got so many hours left on this planet like you know essentially you know nothing has that much great importance to me anymore and now i'm i'm sort of freed up i don't i'm not worried about getting that next promotion or achieving some external success uh, it's sort of the it's sort of the opposite of focus. Just literally letting go of any strategic thinking, letting go of goals, and just say, "Hey, you know, follow your gut wherever it takes you. Screw it, you know. It's we're going down either way." So I think that's that's the f- sort of fuck it approach. And honestly, I, both are I think are very very useful. And I think most people do a little bit of both. Um, but that's sort of a that's sort of a tidy way of understanding how one might respond to the news uh, of of their own mortality. How do people, in your experience, say goodbye well? So you know, one thing to caveat right out of the shoots is, you know. There are patterns, there are things you see in this job, you see play out among people. Well, one pattern is framed by my colleague and friend Ira Bayak in the four things that matter most. So one framework is with the time you have left, things that tend to be most important among people to, to, to do or hear is to say things like, I love you, I forgive you, please forgive me, um, and thank you. You know, these four things, these are sort of universal themes that most sentient human beings would like to experience before they die. And he's added a fifth thing, which is, you know, I'm proud of you. If you can find a way to feel proud about yourself or have someone say that to you. And there's really a sixth thing, which is simply goodbye. Um, So those are sort of some patterns that most human beings really light up around. So if you're wondering sort of how, what to say to someone or what to do for someone or what to seek for yourself, you know, that's a pretty good running start. How do you get to those things? Um, But, you know, beyond that, you know, some patterns, another pattern would be most people want to die at home. But what I really like to explore with folks is their own personal, their own creative enterprise, what really lights up for them. So some folks, you know, would just as soon die in the hospital. Some folks would rather just as soon die in the ICU with all sorts of bells and whistles going off and all that. Like they see themselves as fighters. They want to go down swinging. 
that's consistent with their identity. And I'm going to help them get that death. What's really, really key when enters in any conversation about a, a quote unquote good death is that you caveat the hell out of that. This is a very personal enterprise and it is the final sort of gasp of your creative self. So anyway, I just, I need to say all that so we don't accidentally suggest that there's a right way to die and therefore a wrong way to die. It's the one thing we all have in common Mm -hmm. (laughs) and people are afraid of it. Yeah. Not everyone, but I think, I think people, it's fair to say that most people are afraid of dying. Yep. Why do you think people are so afraid of death? And you have to touch on FOMA because I've mm-hmm. laughed when I heard <laughs> hear you talk about FOMA. You, you got to bring that up. Yeah. Too, yeah. too funny. So why why are we all afraid of death? Well, for one, one answer is we're wired for it. I mean, neurologically, endocrinologically, we fight or flight. When we're presented with a, with a threat to our existence, we fight it, we flee it, or we basically pass out. We go limp. You know, I've spent a lot of time with folks exploring these fears and, you know, another sort of way to break it down. And one one way is if, if, if fear gets named in a clinical encounter, which it often doesn't, people will act afraid, but they may not say, hey, I am afraid to die. Sometimes they will, but you can smell it. You know, you know it when it's in the air. And sometimes my job, I've, I've found it useful to sort of break down. Are you afraid of dying? Because most people imagine the dying process to be pretty horrible. And so is that what you're afraid of? Is the, the pain and suffering you're going to have to incur during the dying process? Because if that's your fear, well, then there's a, we know a lot about the dying process. Uh, we can do a lot to push back on that pain and suffering. And so you, you probably don't have to be as terrified of it as you, as you, as you are. We, that's, that's a known thing. Versus are you afraid to be, to be dead? Are you afraid to be no more? Are you afraid of not being, you know, now this, this, this piece of the puzzle is the most fascinating, at least to me, this is, this is the stuff of song, of religion, of poetry, of philosophy. I mean, being, not being, I mean, think about the, whatever, six most famous words in English language to be or not to be. I mean, (laughs) this are, this is a really fundamental uh, challenge to human consciousness. Ex, you know, imagine themselves no more. So, a just to call it out is the most fascinating, hugest thing ever. And then, but from there, so sometimes, by the way, just the fascination you can open it up intellectually, and you get people just sort of interested in the subject. And in that way, they're interested in their own death. And therefore, if you're interested in it, you're probably less afraid of it. So sometimes, just talking about like you and I are doing right now is enough to to uh, to pierce the veil. Um. But when you explore that with folks, sometimes it's you know sometimes it's it's a call to call in the chaplain or get them back to their priest. Perhaps they're afraid of 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 a, of a something of a judgment day, you know, or perhaps they're um, they're afraid uh, that they won't you know ever reconcile with so and so. You know, they're afraid to die with unfinished business. You know, so let's just take those two examples. If they're afraid of unfinished business, well. Okay, there's there's our there's our roadmap going forward. So where I will push that person to spend their precious time is okay. Who do you need to reconcile with? Reconciliation is a big big deal, and there is no guarantee of closure. But if you can construct some for yourself, it's a very powerful thing. So sometimes when you open up this fear, it's, it's the answer is to push back on that fear is to go address your fears, and then your in this case the fear is irreconcilable differences. Go deal with that. If your fear is judgment day, go get back with your priest. Go get right with God. You know, if your fear really turns out is, which is very common, is something more akin to this FOMO thing, which is so it's not really a fear at all. What you really are saying, what you're afraid of, quote unquote, afraid of, or what you just really don't like the idea of is that you're going to miss out on a bunch of stuff. You know, you're not going to be, the world's going to keep on spinning and you won't be around to spin with it. You know, your friends are going to go to the movies without you or whatever it is. And I laugh because, you know, it's kind of, cute common parlance these days is FOMO idea. But there again, once we've named that, that doesn't sound so, that's as, you know, FOMO doesn't sound like some stuff of fear so much as it really has to do with, oh, shoot, man, I'm going to really miss you. 
I'm going to really miss going to the movies. You know, then all of a sudden, if you open that up, well, and if you're if you got time enough to be answer, asking yourself this kind of question, you've got time enough to deal with it. So whether it's go see your priest, go talk to people you've had arguments with, or go, go experience the hell out of life so that you'll die with as few regrets as possible. Uh, you know, however, the, these the however you get to your own answer. The answer to this question of fear usually points us back to what we really, really value in life, what we really, really love about life, and therefore, recasting the fear as something or as something to do with love can kind of help you lean into it, dig into it, pursue the fear rather than to run away from the fear, because the fear is telling you what's meaningful to you and is telling you where you should point your precious attention. Does that make does that? Can you see how that can play out? Absolutely. So your career, your life's work is working with people who are suffering and working with people who are dying. So I imagine at this point, hundreds and hundreds of of people that you're connected with, you've lost. Mm -hmm. How do you take care of your own emotional health and well-being and and the work that you're doing in the world? Um, Well... You know, that's a work in progress. I mean, I think a lot of burnout is rampant in, in this field as it is in all of healthcare these days. Um, you know, specifically, if you're doing a lot of end-of-life care, part of the job is getting really good at, at metabolizing grief. Um, part of the job is getting really, really interested in your own life's experience so you don't actually make the mistake of sacrificing yourself along the way and then you'll get to your deathbed full of regret, regrets yourself. So essentially, one of the one of the tasks for any of us in this work is to actually learn from our patients. I mean, we have we have all these vicarious deathbed moments uh, to learn from, and so we just have to kind of be sure to to walk our walk the talk. Um, so for me, that often ends up being time alone. And work is very social, um, and so sometimes uh, so solitude is really really important to me. Time with with the rest of nature. I mean, I'm I, I'm I, I'm all for humans. Humans, pretty amazing species, but we ain't the only ones. And so, for me, being out in the woods with my dog is just about the most healing thing imaginable. Um, working on different levels of, cog- uh, of of experience and cognition. You know, I'm not necessarily having conversations verbally with my dog, but boy, are we in communication and exploring and feeling all that. The aesthetic domain, loving my senses, feeling life, feeling feeling the world through this body while I have this body that lights up from my work and as well as from my injuries. And to me, that's a really important compass is this aesthetic world. You know, when I did 100% full-time clinical work, that was just in some ways really too much. I couldn't, I couldn't keep up with the grief and, and the perspective that it required to do it very, very well without shutting down. So I've just, I don't do full-time clinical work anymore. I have some clinical work. I have some uh, public engagement work. Uh, I have some teaching work, and that just sort of, that sort of, <laughs> I've diversified my portfolio, you could say, and that that <laughs> that's helped me stay fresh and interested. You are also, in diversifying your work, uh, an author, and you have a new book, The Beginner's Guide to the End. What is your intention for the book, and who did you write it for? So, yeah, Beginner's Guide to the End. Shoshana Berger, she's my co-author. She and I wrote this book. Um, It took us almost four years. Um, but the basic gist, the reason why we wrote this book is dying has become way harder than it needs to be in modern times. Uh, dying, you know, so our, the main enterprise of this book is to help people get to their death with a little less pain and a little more peace or a little bit more, a little more meaning um, and help people sort of take charge of their own experience to some degree, to whatever degree possible. There's no way to write a comprehensive book about everything you're going to experience in life until you die. But to put out the basics of all the things we actually really know and have them all in one place, is the, the hope would be if this book makes its way around, around the country, around the world, that we would all have a fighting chance. We'd have a, level, have a more level playing field. And so in some ways, the goal is to raise the floor on the experience of dying. I mean, we can't, 
we can't mandate beautiful, wonderful deaths, but we can certainly work to get out of the way of beautiful deaths when they want to happen. And we certainly, right now, we run the risk of mandating you know, horrible deaths in the way our system is, is rigged. There's a lot of room for reassurance, and I hope we do that well in the book. There's a lot of time we're just we're just holding each other's hands and just going through it together. There's nothing necessarily exotic about it. There's plenty of room for reassurance. You will you will get to your death. You will succeed at dying. You will not. You are not going to fail at it. Everyone succeeds at it, so you can relax. And it's also true that these days we live in a world with a healthcare system and a, and social systems too that conspire to kind of keep us away from this piece of our nature. And the technology in medicine has advanced to the point where it's you know, we can we can prop up a body indefinitely now, practically speaking. And so it begs the question: What is life and what is death? I mean, we have to kind of rethink our definitions of these things. If you're you know. Uh, kept alive on machines, are you really alive? To what degree are you alive, et cetera? Um, the point here is, no, the healthcare system is far from intuitive and you actually really do need guidance because at some point you're probably going to need to say no thanks to the healthcare system if you want to get off the wheel with some comfort. Um, and that's that's a modern phenomenon. You know, 50 years ago, you could feasibly, 20 years ago, you could say, well, I'm a fight as long as there's something on the list to try that has a chance of helping me. And then when there's nothing left to try, then I'll accept my death and then I'll go peacefully. You know, that, that made some sense. But now if you're, if you're, if you're waiting to exhaust the list of things to try, you don't, you're, you're, you, you will die trying, like trying frantically trying these things to go down your list. At some point you're going to have to know enough to ask the right questions, to navigate this uh, this system, to get out of it, to get off that wheel, and that again that that's a that's a new problem. What do you hope that people take away from your story, BJ? Um, I suppose that we're all in this together. That we all suffer. It's not a weakness that I suppose it's, you know, so I guess one message is, hey, we all go through shit. Some is just more dramatic, some more obvious than others. So let that link us because it does. It's a linkage between humans. Not only will we suffer, but we'll have the consciousness of our suffering. And that's a huge bond. So that's that's one takeaway. Um, And I sort of related to that is, so therefore there's no shame in it. You know, that leads to the second takeaway, which is, you know, let's all, let's take language back as something that serves us. And same with technology. Let these things, our inventions serve us, not the other way around. You do not have to inherit the label of a quitter if you choose to go on hospice, for example. Um, You do not have to inherit the term crippled um, or handicapped as someone who's dealing with a different kind of body. You, you know, you pick your own label. You pick your own adjectives. Um, that, that I think is really, really key. We have more agency than we think we do very often or that we allow ourselves to, to, to work. Um, I suppose that's a second message. A third message is, I suppose, since we're all going to die, since that's not a failure, um, let let's see if we can find our way to a creative response. As human beings, we've come this far as a species because we find limits and we create ways through and around them. So in some ways, we humans are dependent on our limitations. We respond to them creatively. And the limitation that mortality presents is a massive one, is a mass and is therefore a massive call to creative arms. Um, Let's live well until we die. Let's stay creative until we die. Let's see disability as a as a creative, adaptive enterprise, etc. Um, and if we got, if we have to have a sort of a tonic attitude towards our own the details of our own life, let it be a creative one. I love that. So before we end, we're going to do a little rapid fire. I'm just going to throw out some questions, and you give me whatever comes to mind. Great. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? Mm. Well, I like this one that just is stuck. I don't know if it's the best piece of advice, but it's just stuck, which is uh, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> I like that very much. Me too. <laughs> Favorite way to spend a Sunday? Mm. In a river with my dog. 
Biggest pet peeve? Mm, uh, when uh, I guess biggest pet peeve would be willful ignorance. Biggest vice? Mm, for me, mm, I was going to say booze, but really the biggest vice in me is self the self-critic. Last thing you do before you go to bed at night? Mm, when I'm doing well, the last thing I do before I go to bed at night would be something to do, look back on my day and realize what I liked about it and what I'm thankful for about it. But very often it's actually just a Netflix movie. <laughs> I think we can all relate. Mm -hmm. The one thing I wish everyone knew about the experience of dying. That you're going to be okay. That you're going to get through it. Thank you, BJ Miller, for making the time to have this conversation. I'm, as you know, very excited to to share it with our listeners. So thank you. And where can we find you online, on social media, your book? Mm. Let us know where we can find you. Well, A Beginner's Guide to the End we have. So that's published by Simon Schuster. We have a little website of our own. It's just the acronym, A-B-G-T-T-E, Beginner's Guide to the End.com. Come sign up there and follow along. The next thing that we're up to is the Center for Dying and Living. Go to the Center for Dying and Living.org. And we're just beginning. You know, we made this website in the kitchen and we're just beginning to raise money to grow this thing. But if you're interested, come come visit us there, sign up and come along for the ride. It's gonna be, we're gonna go hopefully do really wonderful, cool things. I have no doubt. Mm. BJ, you're awesome. Thank you again for making the time. And yeah, I'm just really grateful and mm. hope you have a great day. You too, Kimmy. It's such a pleasure talking with you once, twice, and hopefully a third and fourth time. So thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you, okay. BJ. Bye-bye. Bye. Today's interview with BJ Miller supports CTAC, the Coalition to Transform Advanced Care. They are dedicated to the idea that all Americans with advanced illness deserve high-quality, person- and family-centered care that is consistent with their goals and values and honors their dignity. You can learn more about their important work at thectac.org. To find BJ's new book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, you can head on over to Amazon or look for the link in this episode's show notes. As always, thank you for listening. We hope you learn something new and feel a little bit wiser. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Sound engineering is by Matt Sav at Fairfax Village Studios. And our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read the show notes, and get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.